Are you ready for Christmas? Twenty-one shopping days left. Exciting times, right? Christmas is, is a fabulous time. Now, now, you may have come in today, and we've done this for the last several years, but you see this candle, this wreath on the front, and if you're like not from a more liturgical tradition, you might not recognize that. We call that an Advent wreath. Baptists typically aren't liturgical, but I think it's purdy. So... It's something that we've used for the last several years. And in those kinds of, of, of ways of looking at worship, the seasons of the year, Advent is a four-week time. We're actually in the second week of Advent. That's why two candles are, are lit today, and we'll light one each service up until Christmas Eve. Um, but, but there's a different theme that goes with each week of Advent. And today we want to talk about the theme of expectation. Are you expecting anything in 21 days? Now, husbands, you should be looking at your wives right now and seeing how enthusiastically she's saying yes, right? Are you expecting anything 21 days from now, ladies? Okay, good. We have these, these different expectations, and, and a lot of times our expectations are built up. Dare I traipse across that, that line? Yeah, sure, why not? I'm among friends, right? Now, one, time, one place that our expectations are often built up is during, uh, it's been a while since we've had one, political campaigns. <laughs> Still with me? Yeah, yeah. Dare I say that political campaigns are often marked by promises that don't quite ever get kept. Now, I'm an equal opportunity offender, so we're going to go both Democratic and Republican. Um, A few years ago, one of our Republican presidents in a debate said, read my lips, no new taxes, right? (laughs) Turned out not to be the case. Not so long ago, there was another president on the Democratic side that said, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. We should move off of politics quickly now. Because... That's just one area where promises are made and they aren't always kept. I, I had a really rough night's sleep earlier this week. I like woke up at 12.30 and couldn't fall back asleep and so decided just to go into the living room and turn on the TV. You know what they show at 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know, there are some remarkable products for sale. <laughs> I almost completed my Christmas shopping. And I was just about to pick up the phone and dial that number for only nineteen ninety five and make my wife's dreams come true. <laughs> when at the end of that infomercial, have you gotten there? The words begin to scroll. And they go really fast. And they're really small. And usually there's somebody behind them talking, blah, 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 call now. I would really love to read that fine print. I'm assuming it's not going to work out well for me. Five easy payments, whatever it is. And we, we are confronted, we are offered a lot of promises. We are told to pin our hopes to this. It's the answer to this question. It's the answer to that trouble. And, and time and time again, you know as well as I do, we're often disappointed, let down. Just doesn't work out the way we're promised. But one of the good news bits of Advent is Advent reminds us that God always fulfills his promises. And so the, the theme of expectation in Advent 
anchors us to that reality, anchors us to the fact that God throughout history has promised and then has in turn acted to fulfill his promises. And so today I want to take a big picture look at how some of that works. I want to take a big picture of here's some things God said and promised and did in the Old Testament, but I also want us to see how at times those promises didn't feel in the moment like they were fulfilled because of some things that got in the way and see if we can't learn a little bit from that. But overall, we're going to get to the bottom line reality that God keeps his promises. We can expect that he will do that. So when we go back to the beginning of of the Bible, we get to that section called the Old Testament. And I really don't like to call it that, but I've been calling it that all my life. The reason I don't like to call it that is because it kind of has a negative connotation. Old Testament, um, Old Covenant. It's it's kind of the idea that that that's, that's over and done with. That's the old stuff. Get with the new. Like Christmas morning. You want to open a new present, right? You don't want somebody to wrap up the present from two years ago that you really liked, put it back under the tree and say, no, this is an old covenant promise right here, honey. Enjoy. Just like you did two years ago. Guys, you watching? Did any lady bite on that one? No? Okay, never mind. The Old Testament, that word at times separates us from the reality, but, but... in the, what we call the Old Testament are contained these promises. And we really can't understand, in my view, the reality of Jesus and the hope and the fulfillment of them in the new until we get a little bit of a handle on the old. So really quickly, said he, I'm going to try to take some broad stroke looks at the Old Testament. Let's go way back. Let's go to kind of in one of the places where we see the beginning of God working in history. It was with a man by the name of Abram. God comes to Abram and he says to him, I want you to pack up all you have and leave and go to the country I will show you. And through you, he would say, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. Pretty, pretty heady stuff. Could you imagine if someone would come to you and made that promise? If God, more particularly, came to you and said, listen, through your life and through your family, I'm going to somehow touch everyone on the face of the earth that ever lives in a, in a positive way. That's, that's pretty heady stuff. And Abraham, well, he did what God told him. He got up and left and went to the land that God would show him. He didn't tell him where he was going, he just went. And, and one promise that God makes to Abraham in particular is in Genesis chapter 22. It's one that we often talk about when he says to Abram, or later Abraham, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. he talks about his descendants particularly. And, and in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, this is what... The scriptures say, he says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Can we say that's a big number? It's a huge number. Now, as history proceeds, we know that Abraham and his wife Sarah had some trouble having kids. She was barren for many years of their marriage. And in spite of that, God reaffirmed his promise to him. God told him, this is going to happen. Abraham tried to take matters into his own hands, uh, come up with a plan to help God along. Anybody ever done that? Yeah. God, maybe you didn't remember. Let me just see if I can help you a little bit with this. And he did, and that didn't work out so good, really, when you think about it, until at the age of 100 years old, his wife, the age of 90, 
Surprise! You're going to have a baby. Yay team, right? Just the news you want to hear. And so Abraham has the son of promise, Isaac. Uh, Isaac has some kiddos too, right? Who are they? Bible quiz time. A couple twins, right? Jacob and Esau. Esau comes out first. Jacob comes out holding on to his heel. They don't get along. There seems to be a little tension until finally uh, Esau sells his birthright. Jacob steals the blessing from their father. Jacob runs off and hides. All that eventually gets worked out. Jacob, the next in line, has 12 kids, right? The youngest at the time, the favorite at the time, Joseph, whose brothers didn't like him so much. Got that nice sparkly coat. Goes out to see his brothers in the field. They say, let's kill him to death. Then one of them kind of speaks up and says, that's not a good idea. So instead of killing him, they fake his death and sell him into slavery, which was much, much better, wasn't it? Yeah, really much better. Much better plan. Well, he goes into slavery in Egypt. Through a series of events, rises until he's the second most powerful person in all of Egypt right under Pharaoh miraculously so, through ups and downs, betrayed, lied about, somehow gets to that point, and his family is reunited. This brother who they thought was dead now is the leader and saves them, and the whole of, of the people of, of Isaac's family, or Isaac, Jacob's family, Israel's family, go, they live in Egypt, and then Exodus chapter 1 tells us something very important. If you Years go by, and Exodus chapter 1, I believe it's in verse 8, tells us this. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Now remember, we started by saying, Advent tells us we can expect God to keep his promises. And here's what I want us to see in the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, the early days of the nation of Israel. You can hold on to that expectation even through the threat of the world's brokenness. Up until this point, God had been moving the story along. The patriarchs had come. The nation was beginning to grow. They get into Egypt, and it becomes a place where now a king of Egypt steps up, and this broken world system, marred by sin from the very beginning, rears its ugly head and seems to thwart the promise of God. Because instead of this great and mighty nation, descendants as numerous as the sand on the sea or stars in the sky, instead of this growing, blessing place, there is now Israel obscured, enslaved, and to many for 400 years forgotten. Why? Because there was a new king in Egypt who did not know about Joseph. You know what I've seen in life? There's always a new king in Egypt. Anybody here got worries? Sure. I mean, let's just talk about some big stuff that shows up. In the news, there's lots that we hear about ISIS. Legitimate threat in our world. Not too many weeks go by that there's not another something somewhere, another attack, more deaths, all in the name of this, this terrorist organization. Maybe that's not close enough to us where we are here, although it's part of it. Uh, but, but different things can affect us. Maybe it's other players on the world stage. Maybe it's the, the issues with, 
with Russia or China. Maybe it's a little even closer to home. Maybe it's the economy or more specifically your economy, your checkbook, your income, your expenses, your health. There's always something in this world, a new king in Egypt that rears its head and wants you to give up hope on the promises of God. The people of Israel in captivity in Egypt could have had every right for 400 years to say God has forgotten us. God doesn't mean what he says. His promises aren't true. We're left out here. We bought a lie. Nothing's going to ever come of us. But what did God say to Abraham? I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore until this king of Egypt comes along. Things come into our lives that seem to thwart the idea that God is truly faithful. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Check the lens you're looking at things with. If you were to talk to Abraham at some point in his life after God had made these amazing promises and say, "Uh, Abraham, how's that working out for you? How many descendants you got, Abraham? Well, there's that oldest son that's really, I've told, not the one with Hagar. That, that, and then there's Isaac. So, so I, guess, I, I guess two. Well, is God faithful? That's not a very popular beach, is it? Two grains of sand. It's not a very bright sky, two stars. Even on a cloudy day, you can sometimes see more than two stars up there. Right? Doesn't look good. How about... Well, let's put it in a different way. Christmas is coming. Did you know that? How many of you have kiddos, like little kiddos, under the age of like 12, 13? Like not teenagers. Teenagers is a whole different brood. So some of you are tracking with me. You got the little ones. Okay. One popular gift that kids get from time to time, you may not know this, is a bike. Did you know kids outgrow their bikes? Have you seen that? You buy your kid a bike, and over the they grow so fast. And at some point... You're out there, and maybe you're watching your son or daughter ride their bike, and you see them get on it, and they're frustrated. And they say, this bike is too small. I don't want to ride my bike anymore. I want a new bike. That's like in May when Santa's not coming. It's much different in November, December. Mommy, do you think I could get a new bike? Because I love you. You know, but you see that. And what do you do in your mind? You, you, mark, you mark that down, right? You see it, you see the bike's too small, you think to yourself, they love to ride their bike, they're frustrated about their bike, they told you they wanted a new bike in whatever tone of voice they use, and you mark it down. I think I'm going to get them a new bike for Christmas. Well, the next day, after that moment of frustration your, your sweet little one had, they come home from school, and they know they ask you for a bike, and they run to the house, they open the garage. It's the same old bike. There's not a new bike. Well, that's a shame. You know what? Maybe it's just one day. Mom and dad maybe had to save a little bit. I'll give them a week. And so they tried to forget about it because a week in kid time is like an eternity. It's like heaven forever and ever, 10,000 years, and we'll still be singing kind of a thing. And they come back a week later, and they're coming home from school, and they think, it's been a week since my mom and dad said they were going to get me back. It's been a week since I told them why. They open the garage, they look in there, and it's the same stupid bike. And if you were to ask the kid in that moment, Did your mom, did your dad hear you say you wanted a new bike? And I said, I don't think they did. Do you believe 
that your mom and dad really love you? They might say, I'm not sure they'd have bought me a new bike. Hopefully they wouldn't say that. Not your kid. But what do you want to say as a parent? You want to say, listen, I know. I know, little one. I know you want a new bike. And I heard you. And I'm going to get you a new bike. But you need to know Christmas is coming. You just need to wait. You need to zoom out a little bit. You need to, to back up a little bit and allow things to happen. And for, with a close-up lens, if you looked at Abraham's life and there's just a descendant or two, you think, how faithful is God? And even if you go forward a few generations, when there's a few more descendants, his, his grandson has 12 kids. Is that the right? I don't know if I said that right. But he got 12 descendants that become the 12 tribes of Israel. You would think, wow, God's beginning to keep his promises only for the king of Egypt to rear his head and put them in slavery. And you think, well, maybe God isn't faithful after all. But I think we need to remember, sometimes these kings of Egypt come along. And just because we cannot see the faithfulness of God today, right now, this minute, it doesn't seem like he's answered, it doesn't seem like he's active, it doesn't seem like he's heard, that doesn't mean God's not faithful. It means maybe our perspective is just a little too narrow. Let's go to the next generation of Israel's history. Because as Israel is in captivity, at one point, Scripture tells us that they cry out to God and ask Him to deliver them. And He raises up a deliverer, Moses. Actually, in Egypt, you know the story maybe where his parents had him and the the edict was that all the uh, Jewish boys were to be killed at their birth and his parents hide him in the basket, put him in the river. Uh, The Pharaoh's daughter finds him, brings him into the palace, raises him as a son of Pharaoh and he he grows there until he has that incident with another Egyptian, kills him and has to run off in the backside of nowhere where God sees him, finds him in the person of the burn, in the, the picture of the burning bush, calls him and sends him back to Egypt where he goes before Pharaoh and through a series of miraculous plagues, God hears and answers until Pharaoh relents and lets the people go and the people go out and cross the Red Sea on dry land. And the army of Pharaoh is routed as the the waters crash over them, and the people of God now have been delivered. And they gather, and God reaffirms His allegiance to them, reaffirms His covenant to them. In Exodus chapter 19, I want to read a couple of verses uh, in verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 5, that, that shows what's happening here. God makes this promise to the people of Israel. He says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And Moses speaks that to the Israelites. And they say in unison, we will do everything just as the Lord has commanded us. Ah, all is right with the world again. Or so we think. Because then we see a little bit later, a few generations later actually, and in my view, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It's in the book of Judges, chapter 2, that shows what happened from a people miraculously delivered from Egypt, provided for miraculously in the desert, established 
in this promised land, miraculously by the hand of God, now settled, and the leaders, these judges that would kind of lead them through this, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. From one generation to the next. And we say, Oh, how could that happen? And then I look in the mirror. And I realize, you know, sometimes the threat isn't on the outside. It's not the king of Egypt out there that seems to get in the way. The evil and the brokenness of our world that gets in the way and somehow makes me not believe in the faithfulness of God. Sometimes I need to deal with the fact, well, I'm the problem. And sometimes it's my own sinful distractions that try to thwart that expectation and that, pre- that hope in God that's in me. I know a lot of you use the YouVersion Bible app, right? It's the one that's got the Holy Bible icon. One of the cool features I found a few years ago, and I'm sure some of you use it as well, is the, the reading plans. There's a whole bunch of reading plans on them. You can like, read through the Bible. There's also a whole bunch of devotionals that are included in there. All free. It's really remarkable what's in that app. And so I'll, maybe like you, maybe it's the first of the year, maybe it's first of the school year, maybe it's some significant event. You're like, I'm going to start a Bible reading plan. And I set it up in my phone, I set it up in my app so that I know here it is and it tells me every day and it just comes up and I just read through it. Ah, I've done my Bible reading. I'm really excited because I start it and it's good and I'm enjoying it. And it's like, this is awesome. I love doing this. This is wonderful. I'm in the Word every day. I'm spending time praying every day. This is great. And then there's that day. Let's call it a Tuesday. That, I don't know, something comes up. You've got to get up early, have an appointment, I don't know what it is, but you maybe you oversleep and you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to do my Bible reading. You know what? It's late. I'm running late. I got to get here. I'll do it later. Anyone? Anyone? And then later comes, right? Later, like that night. And you're like, oh, I haven't done my Bible reading because you got the little email that says you haven't done your Bible reading today. Isn't that nice of them? It's like a Holy Spirit by email. And it comes in and you're like, oh yeah, you're right, but I had to get up so early today. I'm just so tired. Anyone? Anyone? I'm just, if I even try to read this, I'm going to fall asleep. You know what? I'll read two tomorrow. Oh, exactly. And you wake up the next day and I don't know what happens. Let's say one of the kids gets up early and gets up ill and, and you get up and you've got to deal with them and, and, and you know, you're like, oh, it's like middle of the day. I didn't, I didn't do it. You know what? I'll do it tonight. And tonight comes, and you know, you're busy, this happens, homework, who knows what, and you didn't do it tonight. So I'll do three tomorrow. I'll do eight tomorrow. I guess I have to do 30 tomorrow. And you just, after a while, you just forget until you get that email. We noticed you're a little behind on your Bible reading plan. Well, thank you. Life Church, bunch of jerks. Right? I mean, you've been there, right? You, you meant well, and it was going good, and then life happened, and you got distracted. And a whole generation doesn't take that. It takes one bad morning sometimes. And I'm over here. And all this hope, and all this promise, and all this talk about the faithfulness of a good God just seems to go away. Maybe it's not time, maybe it's just the worries of life. We have a habit in our household sometimes. We don't just worry. 
we get ready to worry by worrying. (laughs) We worry about stuff that might happen sometime later. Are you like that? Like, you know, this, this could be bad. Been talking about Christmas, talking about kiddos. You know they make college cost calculators? If you have a young child, please don't go on that website. <laughs> when we were getting ready to send Caroline to PBA, you know, that's one of the things. They should just go online and see the tuition and da-da-da. And we did, and we went, <gasps> you've got to be kidding me. And they try to tell you, well, you know, there's this thing. And, and we, we're like, okay, she really wanted to go there. We're going to do this. So we go to campus for the visit. It's like the orientation visit in July before she starts in August. And we go, and one of the stops on your orientation tour is the financial services office. That's code word for how you're going to pay the bill, right? And they ask us, how do you plan on paying your balance? And Denise said, well, God's going to have to take care of that. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, I don't think the financial services people were as impressed as I was with that answer. (laughs) You know, things like that happen, and you can immediately go to, this isn't going to work, how is this going to work? I'm going to say, I play, I'm going to worry about it, I'm thinking about it, how is this going to happen? And that's just one example. Things can come in, it's, it's sometimes our own propensity to be distracted that robs us of that hope, that expectation, that trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God. I love the story of the prodigal son, not because of the prodigal son, because of the picture of the father. When you think about that story and the the prodigal asks for his inheritance and goes off into the country, you wonder while he's out there and while he's doing all that he's doing, he's, he's the life of the party, he's you know, buying everybody's round at the bar. He's hosting the party. They're having a big time. What do you think the conversation was about in those moments? Here's one thing I bet it wasn't about. You know, I just love my dad. He's so great. I bet it was nothing about that. I bet it was probably the opposite. I bet there were times around that table in those parties that dad came up and how horrible he was and how much of a taskmaster he was and how how strict he was and all the things that this prodigal had against his dad. Because it was a big party and everything was great. But then the money ran out. And with the money gone, you know what else was gone? All those friends. They're gone too. Because you can't buy the the rounds anymore and you can't host the party and you find yourself longing to eat the slop you're feeding the pigs. And what does it tell us he began to think about? You know, my dad isn't so bad after all. You know, when I think about it, the servants in his house have it better than I do here. Maybe my dad isn't such a meanie. Maybe my dad had some things that he knew better than I. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to plead my case. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. So if you'll just have me back, even as a servant, I would be honored just to be in your house to serve. Of course, you know the end of the story, right? The dad sees him and welcomes him and doesn't welcome him back as a servant, but restores him to his full place as a son. My son who was 
dead is now alive. My son who's lost is now found. And in that moment, we see the picture and, and, and of, of the faithfulness of the father, the extravagant love of the father that not too long ago the son denied would even be there. Same thing happens to me and you, you know. We get distracted and we get off and it's, it's this or it's that or the other. It's the worry. It's the pressures of life. It's the struggles that we face. It's our own tendency to move that way that robs us of seeing the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. Fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament story or the, the Hebrew Bible story. And after the judges ruled, the last of the judges was a man named Samuel who was more than a judge. He was kind of more prophet than judge, really, as some people look at him. And, and of all the things he did, one of the things that, that he didn't want to do that he ended up doing was honoring Israel's request to give them a king. God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And so he anointed Saul as king. Didn't work out so well, as we know. And after Saul, next comes the second king of Israel, the king of promise, the king of hope, the giant killer, David. And God finds this giant killer, anoints him as king, and makes a promise to him. And in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise to this king, David, verse 16 is this. He tells David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounded good to Abraham and your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Sounded good to Israel. Everything you have said, we will do as you've commanded. Sounds good to Israel again when David is given this great promise. And so David, a man after God's own heart, in spite of his failings, has the blessing of God, expands the kingdom physically further than it had ever been, and is followed by his son Solomon, who, shall we say, had a woman problem. Hey, woman, we, I mean, it started out really great for Solomon. Whatever you want, I'll give you. Ask for it. And Solomon didn't ask for power, didn't ask for wealth, asked for wisdom, and God says, because you have asked, I'm not only going to give you what you've asked for, I'm going to give you all that other stuff too. And Solomon amazingly, or God amazingly blesses Solomon, and then Solomon kind of goes off the rails. At one point, 700 wives and 300 concubines, or 300 wives and 700 concubines. Either way, it's 1,000 ladies. That was a weakness. Unfortunately, it wasn't just the women, it was the fact that Solomon's heart, because of his relationship to these women, began to stray from God. And he not only brought them into his home, brought them into his life, but brought their gods into his life and changed the course of Israel's history so that in 1 Kings chapter 11, God would eventually come back to Solomon and say this in verse 9, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. God appeared to him twice. And he turned away from him. Next verse. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And it goes on in that chapter to tell us, God says to Solomon, you will 
be punished, not during your lifetime, but in the reigns after you. And the kingdom of Israel, this, this kingdom that David had sort of solidified and grown, the one, one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever, is now divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Not only divided, but both sides overthrown. First, Assyria comes in and takes over the northern kingdom. Then Babylon comes in and takes over the southern kingdom. And they're taken into exile. Why? Not because they got distracted, but because they just, well, gave in to temptation. These other gods came along and they offered their sacrifices to them. They got focused on maybe God isn't as good as he promised to be and, or because if he really loved me, why wouldn't he let me do this? And if I want to do this, this looks like fun and I want to do this. And if, you know, isn't that the Garden of Eden kind of story? They saw it was pleasing to the eye and good for food and desirable for gaining wisdom. Wasn't the temptation, God doesn't want you to be like him. He's keeping something from you. And sometimes we feel the same way. We fall to those temptations. And we say things like, I'll never do that again. And then we, along with Britney Spears, have to say, oops, I did it again. (laughs) I'll never do that again. Sing it with me. No. <laughs> and that's the story of our lives, isn't it? Oh, I can't believe I did that. I'll never do that again. Oops. I did it again. But I'll never do that again. Oops. I did it again. And that was Israel, and that's me. And in those oops, I did it again moments, it's easy to forget the goodness of God. Because we're out here in this place of our own making, in this mess that we've had a big hand in making, and think, why has God left me here? And and Israel, taken away from their homeland, from the promised land that God delivered, taken away in their mind from the very presence of God that dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem, removed from that. Where is this faithful God? And then we see verses like Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 where the prophet speaking to the people of Israel would say this, that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. You will call his name Emmanuel. And a few chapters later in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, the prophet would say this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then we come to Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. See what Matthew says. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Hey, that reminds me of something, doesn't it, you? Isaiah 7. Next verse tells us this. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But then this happened. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Next verse says this. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And just so you don't miss it, 
verse 23 says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through his prophet. And what did he say to the prophet? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And even when I'm tempted and pulled away, even when Israel found itself exiled, the prophet still made the promises. And in a little corner of that world, in an obscure little town just outside Jerusalem, not in an inn, not in a hospital, but in a manger, Mary and Joseph, having been driven there because that was his, that was Matthew's father's town, gave birth to Jesus. An advent happened. And as the the writers of history recorded, they wanted you to know, Advent means God keeps his promises. And the beautiful thing about the Advent is not only did it show God kept so many promises, it also shows a little bit maybe God changed the rules. Because when you think about the Old Testament, you think about all the stuff that's in there, even you think about what we went through with these different promises and covenants, there was a lot of if-then to it. Like God said, here's what you need to do. And if you do that, then I will bless you. And as we would expect, being human as we are, being in a broken world as we are, we didn't always keep our if parts of the bargain. It's as if God's faithfulness somehow was linked in some odd way to my obedience. But with Jesus, the rules change a bit. Because no longer is it about what I have to do to somehow appease God. It's not about these rules and regulations. It's not about the rituals that were given in history that had to be kept just so. But it's about the fact God entered history and in the person of Jesus did what we proved as human beings we could never do. And Advent is the moment where when Jesus comes, he takes upon himself all of that Old Testament burden, all of that law, all of that curse of the law, and takes it to the cross and dies and invites us to know him, no longer under law, but to live by grace. Scripture tells us that no one can pluck us out of Jesus' hand. Isn't that an awesome thought? Because you know, the kings of Egypt, they're still around. That We still live in a broken world and horrible things happen that make people question the goodness and faithfulness of God. Make you question and maybe me question sometimes. How could this happen? Because I just don't understand. And not just that stuff, but that guy in the mirror rears his ugly head from time to time. And he means well, but gets a little bit distracted here and there. And before you know it, has wandered away to the point it's not temptation anymore. It's given in. And it's, oops, I did it again. And in that reality, that's my life and probably your life, comes the promise of God through Jesus. That when you place your faith in him, he forgives all that and places you securely in his hand where no one can pluck you out. 
That's pretty good news, right? And so we come today to that picture that we monthly use to remind us of what God has done and how he has done it. Call it communion, the Lord's Supper. And these are the the symbols of that moment in history where Jesus purchased for us our salvation, where where Jesus made it possible for us to be placed securely in his hand and our eternity to be certain in spite of the realities of our broken world, in spite of the times where it looks like God is not listening and God is not close and God is not active. That through him, one day we'll get the very wide-angle lens and we'll see things that up close sometimes we miss. And so today I'm going to invite our deacons to come forward as we prepare to worship the Lord together at at his table. And I'm going to invite you as we take these elements to use these moments to think about the faithfulness of God, even and especially if right now in the up close, you might not sense it so strongly.